Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Mark 1, 14 through 39. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, <clears throat> and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, ill with a fever, and immediately was ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought him to all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kyle. Well, good morning again. So we are in our uh, third week now on the Gospel of Mark, and uh, if you're familiar with this image we have out in front of our church, we have it up on the screen, but uh, the Gospel of Mark um, is one of the, is, is probably the earliest gospel in our, in our New Testament, and uh, its whole argument is to help us know who Jesus is, and that is why we have, have uh, adopted the uh, very old, very famous Jesus fish to remind us that when we meet Jesus, we meet uh, the Lord of this world, the Son of God, or I should say the Lord of, of this creation, the Son of God, and the Savior. 
And uh, it is in my desire as we go through Mark that we learn what it means to meet that person and then what it means to walk with that person, to be the disciple of Jesus Christ, the Lord, Son, and Savior. So last week, if you do recall, we saw in the first uh, 13 verses of Mark's gospel that Jesus is the prepared way that God has uh, brought to the world his Son that has been given to us as the prepared way for salvation. We see that Jesus was the prepared way to fulfill God's plan, to make us whole, and to destroy the powers of evil. Now, as we get into the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, which starts today at verse 14, we are going to see that Jesus' ministry begins by establishing his authority. Uh, This clearly fits with the title of our series, because he is the Lord. He is the Son, he is the Savior, and so he speaks and he acts with authority. How does Jesus establish his authority in these uh, beginning chapter? Primarily, we're going to see he establishes his authority through his word, through his power to speak. Indeed, as we go through this passage, we are going to see five marks of Christ's word that show it to be authoritative. So we are summarizing all of this, all, all these five points, all these five marks are to impress upon us. Mark wants to kind of hit us with hammer blows. The one who speaks, the one who has come, he speaks with all authority. You heed him and you listen to him. And the way that you know whether Christ has authority over you is whether his word has authority over you. So this is an absolutely essential thing for us to grasp as we grasp Jesus as Lord, Son, and Savior, and as we call ourselves his disciples. If we are his people, it is critical for us to know and follow what he says. That's foundational. That's basic. I mean, can you really say that Jesus is your Lord if you don't seek to obey his word? Can you know that you are living a truly good life in God's eyes if you do not heed what God has told you through his son Jesus? Maybe even more intimately, more personally, are you the Christian? that you want your child to become. You see, if we don't grasp this, our salvation is in question. Our ability to be obedient and pleasing to God is limited. And the people who we have the most influence over are put in eternal danger if our example leads them not to treasure and follow the word of God. In our passage today, we are going to see five marks of Jesus' word that make them authoritative, that remove all question as to, is Jesus speaking words that I must heed? We're going to see that the the words that Jesus speaks are urgent, they're compelling, they're commanding, they're confirmed with power, And finally, they are most important. If you have in your bulletin the scripture, you'll see on the back side of it uh, an outline of today's sermon. And I would recommend as you seek to to grasp Christ's authoritative word that you would use this aid to help you uh, grasp the message and take it forward and contemplate it in the days ahead. So it is there for your use. All right, let's go ahead now and let's turn to the the first of these five marks of Christ's word that make it authoritative. 
First, we see that Christ's word is urgent. Christ's word is urgent. We see this in the the small account in verses 14 and 15 that established the beginning of Christ's public ministry. We're told in these verses, just to remind you, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when, the, when Mark wants us to, to focus in on what is Jesus' mission, what is Jesus about, we pay attention to the very first words that Mark has given us in this gospel to understand Jesus. And the very first words are quite stark, quite urgent. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Those are strong words. Those are not wishy words. Those are not words that get sewn on our pillows and our afghans. They don't get made into quilts and uh, cross stitches. But these are Jesus' first words. And in some sense, Mark wants us to strike them with an underline so that we know this is what Jesus is all about. To bring the gospel of God and to call people to repent and believe. Now, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, that's a major subject, a huge subject. And thankfully, because the kingdom of God is a major part of Jesus' ministry, we will come back to it again and again in this gospel. So I am not going to spend a lot of time setting out all the aspects of the kingdom of God. However, if you can't wait for future weeks, if you go back to our sermon in the Lord's Prayer on Thy Kingdom Come, you'll hear a lot of background on what the kingdom of God is about. So that would be a good place to go. But just to be simple, the kingdom of God is God's righteous rule. And when and where it comes, evil and unrighteousness is driven out. That is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is God's righteous rule. And where God's righteous rule is, you recognize that evil and sin and unrighteousness cannot survive. Those, those forces, those powers uh, are eliminated. And we see the kingdom of God coming in Jesus as we look at this passage. Because Jesus comes onto the scene, and when he encounters a demon, the demon has to leave. When he encounters a disease or an illness or an unclean spirit, in his presence, they have to leave. Because they do not belong in the kingdom of God, in the place of perfect righteousness, which is where Jesus is present. So for us to grasp uh, the kingdom of God here at the very beginning, we need to understand this. Where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. Where Jesus is, the kingdom of God is. Now, Jesus says in in this first sentence, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The the meaning there is that it is completely fulfilled. It is filled full. All the time that we have been waiting for God's kingdom to come, it's over. It has come. It is here. Now, is the kingdom of God, the time is fulfilled, good news or bad news? 
That's the key question of the Gospel of Mark. It entirely depends on how you respond to the gospel, of message, uh, the gospel message. Because the kingdom of God is fulfilled. The time of the kingdom has come means that God's invasion of righteousness is coming, is here. And if you are dwelling in unrighteousness, sin and darkness and rebellion, then your days are numbered. And you're in great danger. The time is fulfilled is for many of us a warning that the judgment has come. The most important question that these words put upon us, and it is urgent, is do you know which kingdom you belong to? Do you know which kingdom you belong to? Paul explains this in detail in detail that may be threatening or challenging, but detail that we need to grasp. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says this to his congregation. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What Paul is telling us there is not that these sins that he listed cannot be things that you struggle with in your life, What he is saying is that these sins that he listed, which you once were, you are no longer defined by in the kingdom. You are no longer an idolater by definition. Your identity is in Christ, and you confess Christ is Lord. But if we look at this list, if we look at idolaters and drunkards and revilers, the greedy, uh, the, the word behind greedy is covetousness. Covetousness, it's... It's not about how much wealth you have. It's about desiring things that you don't have. It's the Tenth Commandment. We must recognize that these describe who we are, what we are. We are filled with sin and rebellion and darkness and unrighteousness. And this is just one small list. But it gets, I bet, every single one of us. I don't read this list and say, Slick. Got right through that one. Uh, I know what an idolater is. I know what it is to, to, to covet. I know what it is to steal. I know what it is to be dishonest and swindle. And the words here is, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the question, the most urgent question that is being asked of us right here at the beginning is, Which kingdom do you belong to? And the only thing that that moves us from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of unrighteousness, to the kingdom of God are taking to heart these words by Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Those are imperatives. They are urgent. They are something that you cannot move away from without dealing with. You are either repenting and believing the gospel, or you are not. It is a commandment that must be heeded and obeyed. Now, the nice thing about the Greek language is that 
it removes a lot of the ambiguity about what it means to, uh, to, to follow these commandments. When we see the words repent and believe, they are in the imperative, they are in the present, and they are in the active. And here's what that means. Imperative means it's a command. You must obey. They are present, which is to say that it is a continuous action. Martin Luther said that the, the Christian life is a life of repentance. What he is, he is saying from this very verse is that repentance is not just something you did back at young life. At one time, when you felt really bad about yourself or something, it is something you wake up every day. You repent. You turn from your self, selfishness, from your sinfulness, from your life of rebellion. Every day you turn to say, I am going to live under the Lordship of Christ. It is a daily renewal. I am renewing my commitment to live in the Lordship of Christ. It's not something that happened in the past. It is something that is active, that is present, that is always there in your life. That is what repentance is. It is turning again and again back to the Lord because the battle between sin and righteousness is a daily battle. And unless you are repenting daily, unrighteousness is winning. That's the bottom line. And what does it mean to believe? But to renew ourselves daily, again and again, to put our faith in Jesus Christ, to be known by his righteousness and his forgiveness on the cross and by nothing else. Daily we want to say, I am justified by how good I did at work or how good of a parent I am or how I succeeded at school. Daily we want to justify ourselves by our flesh. But the gospel message is daily you must remind yourself you are justified alone. You are washed alone. You are sanctified alone because of what Christ has done for you. Not anything in yourself. To lose daily repentance and daily faith is to move yourself back into the flesh. And Jesus is calling us at the very beginning to commit ourselves to repentance and believing in the gospel. And here is the gospel for us. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Those aren't just hyperbolic words that Jesus gave. The time is fulfilled. Judgment is coming. And where did it come? Where did, where did the judgment of God, the final decree that unrighteousness will not be allowed in my kingdom, get demonstrated? It got demonstrated on the cross where all the unrighteousness, all the sins, all that disinherits us from the kingdom of God was put on Christ's person so that when he suffered on the cross, he paid to the satisfaction of God's righteousness all that separates us from the kingdom. But that satisfaction, that forgiveness only comes to us, is only received by us by repenting and believing in that message. But this is the beautiful news. The one who announces the judgment comes and takes the judgment for his people. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is coming. And he stood in the breach so that all the judgment that falls upon us and our unrighteousness fell upon him. And to receive that grace and that life, repent and believe. So it is urgent, but second we see it is compelling. Now we hear this dramatic message. I mean, it, it would uh, 
It would fill CNN and Fox News nonstop with tickers and all that sort of stuff if this message were given out today. But where, where does Jesus go after he has made this world-altering cosmic message that the ages of, of the past are over, the age of God has come? He takes a walk next to a lake, <laughs> meets a couple fishermen, looks at him, says, follow me. I mean, there's kind of a, a shock there, right? He didn't go to Herod's palace and say, we've got a big message, get all your heralds and go out. He didn't go to Caesar. He goes to recruit a couple fishermen, a couple smelly fishermen. Now, in this account, verses 16 through 20, as he's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, we see, see he saw Simon and Andrew, and he is calling them, to be his followers, to be disciples. And, and in, this, in this way, this passage describes what is to be true of all of us as believers in Jesus. That this moment has happened where Jesus has come and called us to him, and we have responded by following him. And so as we look at this passage, it's important for us to recognize that this is meant for us to see ourselves in it. Now the emphasis on this, on this passage is first and foremost, as we have seen, on the authority of Christ. It is showing the authority of Christ's call upon people. There are three things that show Christ's authority to call these disciples. First, we see that Christ initiates. Christ initiates the call. He sees and he speaks to these disciples. He takes the first action. Second, we see that the call of Christ is authoritative because it supersedes Everything that is going on in their life. It's not like uh, Peter and or Simon and Andrew and James and John didn't have something they were doing that day. It didn't, didn't mean that their calendar wasn't filled with a bunch of stuff for their week. It wasn't that they didn't have a pretty full life already. But Jesus comes to them and seems to give absolutely no consideration to any of that. He supersedes everything in their life when he says, follow me. This is a total life plan. Follow me is not on the weekends. Follow me is starting now and going forever. And so follow me means that they, they were fishermen. Do you, do you see that in the text? Simon and Andrew were fishermen. The call comes to them, they were fishermen. Now they are fishers of men. They left their nets. Now, these weren't weekend fishermen just going out and having a good time. This was their job. This was their employment. This is how they sustained their families. They went out and they fished the Sea of Galilee and they brought that in and that was their day's food and that was their day's income. And they dropped their nets. Jesus' call is bigger than their job, bigger than their daily life. It's bigger than who they are. Who, who, who are you, Peter? Or who are you, Andrew? I'm a fisherman. Not anymore. You are a follower of Christ. That is what is meant. But even more profound, they left their father Zebedee. Now, in this culture, you don't leave your father. You obey the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, and you work your father's job, you work your fa- for your father, you do whatever your father needs. But when Jesus comes and says, follow me, 
They leave their father Zebedee. No questions asked. There's no hesitation in the text. The text wants us to recognize that when Jesus has called these people, it supersedes their identity, it supersedes their careers, it supersedes their week, and it supersedes their family relations. And finally, we see that Christ's call succeeds. Because how long does the text tell us it took these disciples to obey? Immediately. Immediately, they followed him. They responded instantly, and they responded completely. They followed him from that point on, dropping their nets. Now, I think we should go back to the smallness of this scene. Jesus is about to change the world. He's going to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Why does he seek these fishermen? They have no skills. They have no public speaking. They have no ability to to get an audience with anybody significant. I mean, in in a lot of ways, they're fine people, but they're nobodies. They're just average Joes. Isn't it beautiful and amazing and sweet that Jesus calls nobodies? That Jesus calls people who have no impressive skills, no impressive reputation, no impressive capability to do anything. But he says, my kingdom is for you. Follow me. That that encourages me. Anybody can be invited into the kingdom of God. You do not have to pass a test. You do not have to uh, demonstrate a certain amount of, of personal quality. In fact, that's the opposite of what you have to do. You just have to say Jesus and follow him. So what does it mean to be a disciple? We look at, at this word disciple and sometimes we forget to define it. But I love that the, the, the gospels always give us images so that we understand what it means. A disciple is a person who follows Jesus. That's a disciple. Disciples follow Jesus. And so, that's an easy image. Picture somebody following. Picture the little little baby duck following the mama duck. That's a disciple. Follows. The path you take is the path that your master has taken. You follow where his footsteps have gone. You follow where he goes. You follow where he takes you. And in the scriptures, this is a synonym for a believer. There is no question if you believe in Christ, are you a disciple? That's not a second step of maturity. You are a disciple, you are a believer. The texts treat these things as as synonyms. Now in today's world, I don't think we understand this. Has anybody heard that phrase, uh, God is my co-pilot? You know, you've, you've, you know, sometimes it's on a bumper sticker, God is, is my co-pilot. Is that what a follower, is that what a disciple is? God is my co-pilot. Take the image of a co-pilot. How, how, how does that work? You've got two chairs flying the plane side by side. That means you're sharing the responsibility of flying, right? Now, I, I love my evangelical brethren, but I've seen some people say, well, yeah, we know that God is my co-pilot. It's, it's, just, it's not right. So then they add to their bumper sticker, if God is your co-pilot, switch seats. I don't really know how that fixes anything. Because <laughs> you're still sitting side by side, flying the plane. That is not the image of discipleship. The image of discipleship is 
we have a leader who is Jesus, and we follow where the leader goes. If Jesus is your Lord, you're not his co-pilot. You're not anywhere close to the controls. You're sitting in that plane, letting him take you where he wants to take you. This is important to grasp because I think we have a a diluted understanding of of discipleship. David Platt wrote in his book, Radical, a book that I would recommend any one of you taking the time to read. But he said this, The gospel evokes unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have to all that he is. Let me say it again. The gospel evokes unconditional surrender of all that we have and uh, all that we are and all that we have to all that he is. That's what we see in the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John. All that they are and all that they have is surrendered unconditionally to all that he is. That is what it means to be a disciple. And if we are a disciple that follows Jesus, let's just go ahead and, 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 and look down the corridor of time. Where is Jesus going? Where is Jesus' path? It's to the cross. If we are following Jesus, we are going to find our lives more and more and more self-denying and self-sacrificing so that Christ can be known through us. And who knows what following Christ will cost us. But we do know that following Christ is the only way to receive Christ and know Christ and celebrate Christ and have Christ for eternity. So we've seen that that the marks of Christ's word is authoritative, is urgent. We've seen it as compelling. Third, we see that it is commanding. And we are looking now at this, at this uh, passage that deals with him in the, in the synagogue. The rest of the, the chapter or the rest of the, the passage that we're going through uh, sometimes is called just a day in the life of Jesus. And it, it, it's a pretty apt description. But what we see is, is, is a description of, I think, what is typical of Jesus' day. He goes in the synagogue. He goes, he deals with healings, he does exorcisms, he does teachings, and he does praying. This is what Mark wants us to understand is what Jesus did day to day. And he gives us one day in in detail. So Jesus, first of all, comes into the synagogue of of Capernaum, and uh, he, he gets the opportunity to teach. And we find out that unlike other teachers, Jesus teaches like one who has authority. That is the reputation that the people in the congregation say. This, this is not like our other teachers. This man speaks like one who has authority. So what was different about Jesus' teaching that made uh, him appear to be one who has authority? Well, first of all, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they taught, they gave a lot of footnotes. They said, so-and-so says this, and so I say this with them. And -and so-and-so says this, and so I say that with them. And that's how they established why you should listen to them. Because they stood on the shoulders of many, 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 many intelligent, smart, respected rabbis. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus comes, he opens the, the, the scriptures, he says, truly, truly, listen to me. Listen to my words. I don't have my authority vouched by anyone. It is me speaking, and that is its authority. And so he spoke as one who has authority. He presented his understanding of the scriptures as equal to the authority of the scriptures. If you go to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we read this passage, which is typical of many. You have heard, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
What authority does Jesus use to establish the meaning of that law? He uses himself. He says, I say to you. Now, I want to tell you that that is bold. Nobody but God himself can tell you, the scripture says this, but I say what that means in fullness is this. What he is doing is he is saying my authority, my understanding of the scriptures is on par and equal to the giver of the scriptures. Indeed, he is saying they are one and the same. The scriptures have the same authority as Christ, or Christ has the same authority as the scriptures. And that is a shocking thing. And so when we want to say that Jesus is a great teacher, Jesus didn't really allow that perception. Because Jesus is saying not only is he a great teacher, he is teacher equal to God himself. It is a claim to his divinity in his teaching. But when Jesus teaches, we see that there's also resistance. We see that Jesus has laid out this message of God. Immediately, there was in the synagogue a a person with an unclean spirit, or a person with a demon, who comes and confronts him. And this is where we see, once again, what the kingdom of God really is. The kingdom of God is an invasion into the realm and the kingdoms of unrighteousness. Where the kingdom of God advances, there is going to be resistance. Spiritual resistance, there is going to be resistance in your own heart. Because you allow the kingdom of God, the word of God, to have authority over your life, and it begins to ask you questions. Does your recreation glorify me? Does what you spend your free time with glorify me? Does the way you treat your employees glorify me? There's going to be confrontation there. And the question is always going to be, do I wake up and repent and believe? Or do I choose my own kingdom and silence his? So there is resistance. Christ's commands are going to be threatening to the kingdom of self and the kingdoms of this world. And so the temptation for every single one of us is to distract ourselves from this. Just don't pay attention. Watch another Netflix show. I mean, that's how the devil wins, honestly, (laughs) to get you to binge another episode instead of picking up your Bible. Because it's so much easier to hit play. And he's won another 30 minutes of your distraction. Right? So there there is distraction. There is detachment. Some of us have, have figured out that we can just be very academic about what the Word of God says. We can, we can examine it. We can scholarly cons- consider it. But that's not what the Word of God does. It is an address straight to you, to your heart, to your soul. And if you do not receive it like that, you are not participating in it. And then there's straight avoidance. I mean, it's so hard to get to church on Sunday morning. It's so hard to get to the Bible. It's all these sorts of things. We build these excuses and we just build a pattern of avoidance. That is the resistance that you must fight against. Now I want, I want to pay a close attention to this little phrase about where is this demon? It says, there was in the synagogue this man with a demon. In the synagogue was where this, this person was. He didn't come into the synagogue, he was just there. Does does that disturb you? That there was a demon-possessed person happily sitting under the reading of the word of God, the singing and the preaching of the word of God. A man with a demon 
was there unperturbed by the vast majority of it. Until Jesus showed up, he apparently was just fine. What does this tell us? There is no evidence that you belong to Jesus just for being in church. There's no evidence that you're in that kingdom just because you're here. You could still have a demon. You could still be a demon. James tells us, the brother of Jesus, James tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, if our faith, if our confession is no different and no better than a demon, and in fact, if we look at the scriptures, the demons have the best confession. The the demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God. He understands better than anyone who Jesus is. But he is not made righteous. He is not brought into the kingdom. He is not saved simply because he knows who Jesus is. See, he's not a disciple. He does not believe and repent. He does not follow. He has not given his life to Jesus. And so every week that he sat in the synagogue thinking, I'm probably just fine, he was feeding self-deception. Because you must grasp this question. Have I repented and believed in Jesus Christ as Lord? It is until that has truly decisively happened in your life that you, are, that you can say and know with, with, with any hope at all that you are in this kingdom of Christ. Now the Spirit departs simply by Jesus' command. This shows us clearly Jesus' word has authority to judge and to cast out. There is a scary reality that some of us will only hear Jesus speak to us to cast us out. Because we have not received his word in the age of grace. We have not received his opportunity, his, his invitation to repent and believe in him and have everlasting life in days like this. And because we have refused how many dozens, how many hundreds of those, when we stand before, our, before Jesus, and we all will, and we don't know when, What should Jesus say to you but depart from me? If you have not again and again taken the gospel message and believed in it. So this passage tells us that Jesus, you know, his interpretation of scripture is authoritative. That his his word commands even evil spirits and they must obey. Jesus' words are not debatable. They are definitive. They are commands. And if we understand that, then the the definition of a Christian can be nothing less than a Christian is someone who obeys Jesus' words. That's, That's what a Christian, a follower, a disciple would be. Fourth, we see that it is confirmed with power. After Jesus leaves the synagogue, he goes and he goes to Peter's mother in law, who is sick with a fever. And touches her, and she, and, and she is healed. And then at the door, there's a throng of people with diseases and evil spirits and all these different things asking for healing. And he spends most of the night healing the people with various diseases and casting out various unclean spirits. So what are these healings about? These healings are meant to teach us that the message that Jesus spoke was confirmed with the power of God. We know that Jesus' words, the kingdom of God is coming, repent and believe, are true because they were accompanied by the power of God shown through healings and exorcisms. 
These healings are then a glimpse of the kingdom of God for us. When the kingdom of God comes, we have already told us, told you that, that unrighteousness and evil and disease must, uh, must depart. And so when Jesus comes to all of these sick people, we see his mission of restoration, of rescuing the lost, of bringing the wholeness of life that has uh, been taken away by the destruction of sin and death occurring. You see, when Jesus brings the kingdom of God, he is bringing the end of sin and death and unrighteousness. This passage reminds us that when we have our life in Jesus, whether it is today that he gives us healing, which is always his choice, but not, not his, his, he's not obligated to, or whether it is at the end times, when we are in Jesus, we will experience the full restoration of all things. Revelation 21.3 is the life that lays ahead of all who have Jesus by faith. We are told, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Christ, the former things are passing away. That is why when sick people come to him, they experience healing. Because he is bringing the kingdom of God, and the former things of sin and death and unrighteousness have no option but to pass away, to die off, so that the life of Christ can reign. That makes sense? And so what we are being shown here is a glimpse of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Now, Jesus' kingdom does not always come in all the fullness that we might desire of it in the, in the, in the particular day and time. But we know that if we are in, in Jesus, that because he is the Lord, the Son, and the Savior, that this is where all things end. If we are in him, there will be a day where all the tears will be wiped from our eyes, where there will be no death, where there will be no more crying, where there will be no more pain. And we know that because Jesus came with the authority of God, the word of God, the power of God. He came as God. Finally, we must recognize that uh, the fifth mark, that Christ's word uh, is authoritative, is that it has the highest importance. So after all of these healings that Jesus does, we see that he gets up early in the morning and he's praying, and his disciples are trying to find him. Because as you can imagine, Jesus has become very popular. Jesus has become a celebrity. I got to tell you, we got to go meet Jesus. Take your, take your sore hip and let's go meet Jesus. There was a lot of interest in Jesus after this night of healing. And so the disciples who were like, man, this is going to be a great ride. We, we're we're, we're the, the right-hand man of Jesus and everybody loves Jesus. They're excited and they want to get Jesus to continue doing what he did the day before. But we come to this uh, startling response. Jesus doesn't go back to the crowds. He doesn't go back to do more healing. You see, the healing was a sign of who he was. It wasn't his primary purpose. He recognizes that it is time for him to go to other places, to other towns. He says to his disciples, let us go that I may preach. 
For that is why I came out. Why not stay and do more miracles? I mean, imagine the life that Jesus could have had if he just did miracles, if he just did healing, if he just fed people with bread. He'd have never gotten crucified. But that wasn't his message, and that wasn't his mission. He is not primarily to be our healer. He has come to be our Savior. And there's an important, I think, a heart question that we need to ask as we look at what Jesus defines as his mission. His mission is to bring the gospel of life, to be a savior, not a healer. And the question is this, why do you want Jesus? Do you want Jesus to fix you or to make your life a little bit better? Or do you want Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Because that's the only Jesus that's really on offer. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Because he did not come simply to be the person that pats you on the back. He didn't come to be your co-pilot. Preaching the message of salvation is Jesus' purpose. And then fulfilling that message by laying his life down for it is why he came. Jesus leaving the crowds to preach elsewhere shows that the message of Jesus is the highest importance. If it is Jesus' highest importance, it must also be the disciples' highest importance. So let me ask you some important questions. Is the gospel as highest importance what your life shows? What Are you going to do with Jesus' word tomorrow? When Monday comes and you go back to the grind, what's it going to look like? What's Jesus' word in your life going to look like tomorrow? Are you treasuring the word in a manner that you hope your kids will imitate? Will you have more confidence that your kids will end up in the kingdom if they become more like you and how you are walking with the Lord? Or if they did, would you be terrified of where they might be going? For the love of your kids, walk and follow him as, you sh- as he calls you to. If you're looking for for ways to grow in the word. I I think this church is a great place. We have filled the back of our bulletin this week with numerous places where you can get additional food, where you can get additional feeding, additional time in the word of God. We have uh, opportunities on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Sunday mornings. If you're youth, we have an opportunity for you this evening. I hope that you will take the opportunity to soak on Christ's authoritative word. So the five marks that make Christ's words authoritative, it's urgent, it's compelling, it's commanding, it's confirmed with power, and it has the highest importance. I think it is right then to finish with a well-known parable of Jesus. As we listen to it, I ask you to consider, are you being the wise person or the foolish person in what you were doing with Christ's word? Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, 
because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. My friends, have you repented and believed in the gospel? This is what it means to build on the rock. The good news is that we don't have to save ourselves by being perfect and righteous. We simply have to trust the word of Jesus who says that all who repent and believe in him will be saved. He has taken all of your sins away and he has given you all of his righteousness by his life and death and resurrection. And he has given that to you in the word Repent and believe. And in that, you have life and forgiveness, and you are built on the rock. Have you truly made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.